Take your Bible, if you would, and join me in Genesis chapter number two. Genesis chapter number two. You may recall that we began or introduced a series for Sunday nights, uh, last Sunday night, and we've titled the series, Does It Really Matter? Does It Really Matter? And I think it's a good question. There are clearly some things that that we might say in the context of, of person to person or age to age, there are some things that may not. In other words, God just says, um, you know, hey, enjoy that and enjoy it freely. Now he tells us to do things with moderation and he tells us that that gives us principles of balance and discernment. But there are some things that, that all things being equal, it, it probably doesn't really matter. But we chose as our theme verse, Philippians chapter 1 verse number 9. Let me read it for us as a reminder of what our goal is when asking the question, does it really matter? Philippians 1.9, and this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. What, what a wonderful passage of scripture. That your love may overflow, that you might have this abounding love. Remember, there is one distinguishing characteristic that is supposed to be obvious throughout all the ages, all the times that the church has its opportunity to be a salt and light to a a dark world. And that is that people might come in and recognize there is a love that is in this world distinct from all others. It's not just a a phileo love, like a brotherly love, although that's important. It's not just what we would refer to as a storge love. That's a a family kind of love and the special bond that comes from that. Clearly in our midst in the church, it's not what we would refer to as an eros love and, and that which has its rightful place, but not what's supposed to mark us as this family of believers. He says that you're supposed to be marked by something that is distinct from all the rest of the world, and that is this agape, heaven-sent love. And then what are the things that actually mark that love? That love is marked by, or its characteristics are knowledge. Like, oh, hey, I need to demonstrate this love with some knowledge about the matter at hand. This is not just, uh, hey, whatever you choose to do, I, I just, um, you know, I, I just keep loving everything. Well, I, I love one another, but I, I'm not supposed to love all things. I have to have knowledge about what does this love look like in this context. And then he says your love's not only supposed to be marked by knowledge, but also by judgment. Wow, judgment. I know that's a, one of those harsh words today that, that elicits a lot of strong emotion. But really what he's saying is you have to be able to discern, to separate matters, to put something here and put it here. And, and where does this go and where does it not go? So our goal with this series, Does It Really Matter?, is that we, even as a family of believers that may not interpret all these things exactly the same way, would be marked by love that is filled with Bible knowledge and with Holy Spirit judgment or discernment. And then let me go on and say this. We're going to cover some topics that are clearly controversial 
And the topic we're going to cover tonight by, by way of mentioning it is not in and of itself. It's not like one of those that, that just all of a sudden, you know, we're charged. But it is a controversial topic. And let, let me say at the outset, my goal with preaching these messages is clearly not to make enemies. And I'm going to say this up front, I'm not your enemy. Now, now clearly, I'm, I'm broken and sinful like all of us and look forward to the day when I am made whole. Now, I'm made whole spiritually because I'm alive in Christ and complete in him. But there is still something marked about my life that is the result of the curse, the fall. So I, I make enemies, but I'm telling you, I'm not intentionally trying to be anyone's enemy here. That's not the goal. The goal is not even to elicit some controversy. The goal is for us to think and then to think biblically. We may not all come to the same conclusions, but we should all be going to the same God for answers. So with that said, let's jump in with this, this topic tonight. And the topic tonight, does it really matter? And the first topic that we're taking on is what I wear. Does it really matter? How many of you have an opinion regarding how you dress and it may be different from someone else's opinion? Well, we, we come with opinions. We come with preferences, desires. So when we start to think about our clothes, have you ever, like husbands, do you ever come out of the closet and your wife looks at you and she just says, no, turn around and go back in, okay? <laughs> How many, of you've ever had, how many of you have ever had your wife try to secretly throw things away, okay? Ooh, that's, that's, a, that's a big discussion right there, okay? Well, because there are preferences. We have them. We like certain things and, and sometimes others don't like certain things. So there's clearly room for preference in dress. When we start to think about clothes, we, we have to... I don't know, rewind the history tape just a bit and, and let's go to a place where I don't intend for this to be awkward and I'm going to use some language that, that would maybe be more awkward if I didn't than if I did. And I so, certainly don't intend to be junior high-ish about the topic tonight. But we have to first of all just, just back up to the place where, where clothes and coverings are introduced because it's not how we were initially created. So your Bibles are open right now to Genesis chapter 2. Let's start in verse number 21. Genesis 2 beginning in verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. While this is a discussion that we are not going to, to fully try to to, to dive into because it is a, it's a deep and wide subject. There is a lot of thought and a lot of discussion and a lot of controversy that is wrapped around this idea of man and woman's original state, that they were unclothed, they were naked, and they were unashamed. 
Now you and I intrinsically understand some propriety about covering. We today intrinsically understand this. But when Adam and Eve were first created, there there was nothing about them that felt embarrassed. There was nothing about them that felt ashamed or awkward. Now, I can remember hearing in some of the, the, the historic Abeka flashcard series, and I'm listening to this, right? I'm actually not listening. I was reading through some of the content. And I'm reading through that, these flashcards, and, and they talk about Adam and Eve and that they were, they were uncovered. And yet one of the little details that, um, that Becca Horton actually wrote into these, these historic flashcard series is that man and women were initially clothed with the glory of God. And that's a sufficient explanation for a child seeking to understand, well, well, we don't do that today. Why did they? Because there was something pure, there was something innocent, there was something protected about man and woman's original state as covered by the glory of God. But after the fall, what is it that happened? I mean, before the fall, Adam and Eve, think about this, as, as humans, they always had the other's best interest in mind. I mean, let's think through this, okay? For a person today to be uncovered, how taken advantage of might another be viewing this person? And how, in a sense, calloused is this person to not think about the other whose best interests we are always to have in mind? So unclothed, Eve has Adam's best interest in mind. Unclothed, Adam always has the best interest of Eve in mind because both of them are bound in this perfect relationship with Almighty God. He is their first focus. Let me ask you, is he always and is he easily, that's probably a better question, is God easily your first focus, always? Or do you and I find that our focus can so quickly be taken from the one who is to be my primary focus? But in this perfect pre-fall existence, wow, the safety, the protection. There was no such thing as vulnerability before the fall. Have you ever thought about that? They, they were not vulnerable. There was no sense of, oh, wow, I'm overexposed. There just wasn't any of that because they're in this perfect, God-protected world pre-sin. After the fall, what do we find that is one of their first recognitions after the fall? Isn't this interesting? So, so okay, um, listen, you can have your eyes opened. You can, you can be like the gods. <laughs> you can be like God. You can be your own gods. Okay, so what happens after they buy into this lie? Well, in Genesis 3, if you fast forward just a little bit in your Bible, look down at verse number 7. So Genesis 3, verse number 7. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. What happens? Isn't this interesting? So they sin, they fall, 
And now immediately, what is it that they recognize and what is it that they do? I mean, right after the fall, they see something. Now, does this mean that they didn't see each other naked, unclothed before the fall? Were their eyes functioning? Were they aware that there is another human body that I am present with? It, it, it would seem unreasonable for us to think that they simply couldn't see. So now their eyes are actually aware of something that has taken place since the fall. Sins introduced and now, whoa, something now is not the same about me. And now I actually see you differently and I, I see myself differently post-fall. They realized that some protection, some safety had been, had been squandered. The relationship with God had been altered, which now means their relationship with each other has been changed. Now we need to at least acknowledge their bodies are still going to be offered to each other. They're, they're going to procreate. There is still going to be this exposure of the body each to the other. But in their normal day-to-day life, I mean, think through this, right? There's already this covenant relationship that they've established with each other that we refer to today as marriage. And this is before there's any record of children existing. So you have a man, a husband, and a woman, the only two people on the face of the earth. And they're supposed to enjoy the reality of a marital relationship. But this married couple now says there's something that is different than before the fall. And with just a married couple, no one else, they do understand who there, there is some need for covering. Now, quite possibly that need for covering is connected to the fact that now sin has entered into our lives and God sees us. And so maybe there was some sense on their part of of providing some covering for their sin. And then we get the beautiful early picture when God comes and covers them. Blood is shed. A covering is offered. Which becomes for us this beautiful early picture of the covering that Christ's shed blood provides for people just like you and people just like me. So think of the implications. What are the implications of what they did with with what we refer to as this forbidden fruit? Do you know what it brings? It brings this realization. The realization would would sound something like this. Hmm. I don't have to obey. Before the fall, all they did was say, Lord, we want to be in fellowship with you. We walk with you. We fellowship with you. We commune with you. But now after the fall, now their eyes were open to a lot more than just the unclothed body of the other. Now they come to this realization that, hey, I do not have to obey. And true to his word, Oh, deceitful. But the truth of his word is their eyes were actually open. I don't have to obey. I can actually be now in the place of God. I get to do what this God says it wants to do. 
And there is this whole different dynamic that takes place, not only between man and God, but between man and man in his own mind, and then between mankind and mankind. I don't have to obey. That means I can look at you differently. Just as I can make decisions regarding me to please me, I can make decisions about you to please me. The whole system is broken. Marriage is one of those beautiful covenant relationships that actually in some way, shape and form helps us roll back some of the pictures before the fall about the covenant that God makes. But even within marriage, we understand the, the work necessary to protect something that God desires to protect. Prior to the fall, there was no lust. There was no longing for that which did not belong to you. No sense of shame, no potential for adultery, no hint of wanting something because it pleases me, regardless of the cost to you. Again, I don't have to obey. This is why, by the way, the covenant of marriage is so essential to protect It rekindles the protection within marriage that God pictures with his own bride. It's supposed to be this safe place where we together have covenanted together, you and I, with that threefold cord, with God Almighty, we're in this together and we're going to protect this. And it is why those things that are reserved for marriage have to be protected within marriage and refused outside of marriage like this is so important marriage that God says okay this is this covenant now it's so important to protect this covenant protection and to say listen no I'm not going to participate in that because that has something to do first and foremost or at least we, we, we approach this first it has something to do with my body And I want to picture something that is more important than what this body wants and preserve something for the sacredness of marriage. Again, it's why the covenant relationship is so essential to protect. It rekindles the protection within marriage that God pictures with his own bride. It's why you reserve your body for your spouse. It's why you don't send inappropriate pictures to someone who is not your spouse. Why is that? There's a lot of reasons, of course. A lot of practical reasons, obviously. But there are more important reasons than the practical reasons. Why would I not expose my body to another person who is not my spouse? Because you, you were not created for that. It rewires things that, are, that God didn't originally wire you for. And it now takes something that is sacred and actually pictures a beauty between God and us within marriage. And, and it throws it out the window. Obviously, I said, it's why you wouldn't send a picture. Well, well let's take it another step. It's why I wouldn't engage in something that is reserved for the sacredness of marriage. You say, what does all this have to do with what I wear? Well, well, we're working towards that, but we're talking about this original need for covering. That, that need exists and remains today. So what does God do again for Adam and Eve after they had sinned? Verse number 21. 
Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothe them. The curse is pronounced. It, it's, it's many faceted, but we know now, wow, there's gonna be, there's gonna be heartache, pain, difficulty, loss because of, of sin, the curse. And then what does God do? He clothes them. He covers mankind. First thing that they did, they, they covered themselves and now God in another way, God clothes them. There is one thing that we can conclude in this world marked by the results of the fall as it pertains to our, um, our discussion tonight, does it really matter? And that is that God is pro-close. Okay. You know, I'm, I'm being a little, a little silly about that, but not really. You know, do, do clothes matter to God? I mean, seriously, if you're just going to try to answer that question and not all the implications that may come along with it, okay? But if you're only going to answer, does it really matter what I wear? Well, it matters that you wear because God is the one that, that initiated the covering for mankind. So if we're rolling back that tape of history, asking the question, does it really matter? Well, the, the short answer, the easy answer is yes, it does. So since God clothed Adam and Eve, we can safely conclude that at the very least, God is concerned about clothing. So let's consider some principles that we can derive regarding what we wear. Okay, point number one. Point number one is God is not anti-fashion. God is not anti-fashion. Sometimes I think that that as Christians, we immediately conclude that if it's fashionable, it must be sinful. I mean, if it's in for a Christian, it should be out. Amen? Okay. Well, is, is that really how God looks at it? Really? Is that how he looks at it? And, and if God looks at something, is, is God concerned about, about what we wear? Would there be some principles that would be true for all people, all places, and all times? So let's consider some things about, does God care about what we wear? Does fashion even matter to God? When we start to look through scripture, many times I think what, what I do and what you may do as well is we try to insert our culture, our society, our preferences, and look at scripture through our isolated lens. So is God against you dressing nicely, looking good, presenting yourself well? Well, we should be able to answer that fairly easily, but let's, let's look at a couple things. Okay, in Ezekiel chapter 16, I'm going to read a section of scripture. And God is pronouncing some judgment on his people because of their waywardness. But God's saying, hey, listen, this is what I've done for you. I did all of these things for you. Now, please know, this is God saying, God in heaven, I did this for you and you've squandered it. What did God do for his people? Okay, Ezekiel 16, beginning in verse number 10. Listen to what God's done. I clothed thee. Okay, so now we're, 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 our interest is peaked because we're talking about it doesn't matter what I wear. God's saying, I clothed thee. How did God clothe them? Good question. <laughs> Glad you asked. Let's answer the question. I clothed thee also with broidered work. Oh, that sounds impressive. This is, this is, this is detailed work. And shod thee with badger's skin. Some of you might say, mm, that's not in style. And I girded thee about with fine linen. I covered thee with silk. I decked thee also with ornaments. I put bracelets upon thine hand and a chain on thy neck. 
I put a jewel on thy forehead and earrings in, their, in your ears, a beautiful crown upon thine head. Thus wast thou decked with gold and silver. Thy raiment was of fine linen and silk, embroidered work. Thou didst eat fine flour and honey and oil. And thou wast, listen to this, and thou wast exceeding beautiful. And thou didst prosper into a kingdom. And thy renown went forth among the heathen for thy beauty. For it was perfected through my comeliness. Oh, this is interesting. Which I had put upon thee, saith the Lord God. How was their beauty, what was the the pinnacle of their beauty? This is very important as we go further through this. What's the pinnacle of their beauty? Was it their broidered clothes? Was it their silk, their tapestry? Was it their jewelry? Okay, now you answer this question. Who gave those things to the people? Well, God tells us very clearly that it was him. God saying, I'm the one who gave these things to you. But let me tell you, the thing that was the pinnacle of your beauty was that which I placed upon you. And he says at the very conclusion, he said, this is all, it comes together. It's perfected through my comeliness, through his beauty that his people had the opportunity to reflect. They're not carrying themselves about saying, hey, look at my gold chain. Hey, look at my clothes. Look at, look, at my, my, look at the purse that I'm carrying and how much it costs and the shoes that I have. And look at the jewelry that I have. And look at the broidered hair or the hairdo that I have. And look at all that I, I, I. All of that is couched in or surrendered to a beauty that far surpasses that which is the the simple outward adorning. Is God against a person presenting themselves in what certainly would be considered in Ezekiel's day somewhat fashionable? You know, if you you take that a little bit further, he even gives us like, okay, let's just think, do, do we all agree on this? He's given us something that should be obvious. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 32 he says can a maid forget her ornaments he said listen can a girl can a, is a girl going to go out of the house and forget to to dress appropriately ornament herself to to take care of herself is she going to go out saying oh I forgot what's she going to do I mean have you ever gone out and say oh, oh, oh I forgot my you know you, you're going back because you forgot some ornaments So here's what he says. He's kind of made forget her ornaments. And then he goes on and he says, okay, well, let's ask this. He's he's trying to give us an an obvious answer. No, I mean, a girl's going to go, she's going to dress. And if she forgets something, like she's going to go take care of it. That's understood. And God uses that as a common understanding that it's okay for her to dress appropriately. And then he adds to this like, oh, okay, well, if you wavered on that, then he goes to the next one and he says, "Um, or a bride, her attire, Okay, she's getting ready to go be married. And, um, and is she just going to show up in, in her regular Saturday cleaning clothes? Like, oh, hey, ready to get married? Or, or is she going to be like, no, I'm not going to get married in this. I mean, some girl's like, no, I, I can't go to Walmart in this, okay? If she can't go to Walmart in that, how in the world is she going to get married in that? The whole point I'm trying to make is God does say, Hey, there are some obvious things that we understand. Is, is God anti-fashion? You know, if it's in for a Christian, it should be out. Well, what era then has that person connected to? I mean, seriously. Are they wearing what was worn in Ezekiel's day? 
You know, some big toga type thing. Is, you know, well, anything since then is clearly wrong. Is that how it works? Does it have to be like, no, no, I have a, an equation. So it has to be 22.4 years old. And, and if it is, it's definitely out of, the problem with that is it's probably back in fashion now, okay? <laughs> so, so is God anti-fashion Apparently, dressing well is not the problem. So what is the potential problem? The problem comes when my world, my identity, my worth is connected with the outward appearance rather than the hidden person of the heart. Listen to what 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 3 says. Who's adorning? That is a very interesting word. Okay, who's adorning? Let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel. But let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible. Even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit which in the sight of God, which is in the sight of God of great price. The word adorning, okay, here's what the word is. The, word, the Greek word is, is cosmos. Cosmos. What, what, where do we, how do we use that word? That, that word is the word we use for world. The universe. Do, do you know what I believe this passage is saying is not that you can't dress in a way that God dressed his people and he says, I'm the one who dressed you that way. What, what it is saying is it, it becomes absolutely sinful. When that is your universe, when that becomes your world, really what we could say then at this point is you are the center of your own universe. And now the world rotates around you. So my hair has to look exactly like this. Should you care about your hair? And then if we're going to say, well, it can't be the plating of hair. It can't be the, the ornaments. It can't be the, well, how much then? Do you get to define that? Well, a simple set of earrings is appropriate. Okay, how simple? Um, starter earrings. <laughs> how do you start to even define this? And, and then for clothing, they can't cost this much. Well, how much is, is, is this much? Don't you think there would be some cultural implications that would be connected here? Do you know, recently I mentioned this, that, that my old roommate, Bob Mack, was here and and Bob, um, we were talking about the work in Ivory Coast, West Africa. And Bob said, you know, I, I, don't, I don't, quite honestly, and he said this almost hesitantly, but he said, quite honestly, I really don't even wear a tie anymore when I preach. Don't amen there right now, okay? <laughs> he said, yeah, I don't even wear a tie. He says, you know, the temperature is incredible. So the, 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 the heat reality, and then... Let's just ask this, how many people in Ivory Coast, West Africa, wear a tie to church? You say, well, well, why do we? Well, I guess because our culture is a little different. You say, well, well, will we always? I don't know. We don't right now on Wednesday night. And again, I hear this, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> why not? Because we did for years. 
I suspect this, and I, I don't know this, but I suspect, I suspect that there was a lot of wisdom when I was a college student and we wore ties, I think we wore ties until lunch and, um, and wore them off campus. Didn't we wear ties? Yeah, we wore ties off campus and, um, and to bed on Fridays. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect that culturally that was probably wisdom. But, but can some of these things change with culture? Yeah, but you know what's not supposed to, to be part of our dress? That the world rotates around you. Whose world, let it not be the plating of hair and, and the way that I'm attired and the ornaments that I have, that's not supposed to be your cosmos. It's not supposed to be the thing that everything rotates around. And I have to present myself this way because that's where I find my value. That's where I find my acceptance. That's where someone looks at me with a different eye or an extended gaze. And if I don't have that, what do I have? Good question. I mean, what do you have? Are you a blood-bought child of the king? And if that's who we are, we find our value and our worth and our world rotates around something far more important than the, the outward presentation of my body. Now again, you shouldn't, you shouldn't throw that out like, ah, it doesn't matter because Jesus is my world. Well, if Jesus was your world, you probably should be taking care of your body. So, so what do we understand about this? Well, the first thing we understand is God's not anti-fashion. What else do we understand? Next, we understand that God places high value on modesty and modesty is not defined by a list. I'm going to say that again, and I hope, hope we're connected and listening. God places a high value on modesty, and modesty is not defined by a list. In other words, I can't write out all of the rules for modesty. So, well, that makes me really nervous because I like, I like someone to just tell me, do this and don't do that. I mean, wear this and don't wear that. Um, here's the inch rule. And if, and if you have the inch rule, then you're going to be okay and it's going to be modest. Now, I'm going I'm to insert a little bit later. I'll insert it right now. <laughs> so the, the, the thing we, we have to process with this whole discussion or, or you've, you've lost the whole thing. We live in a world right now that understands that places can have lists. And if you haven't gotten that, then, then it's, it is time to, to, you know, when I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. In other words, I, I started to grow up a bit. Can a place have rules? I mean, the strong majority of the people in this room right now, the majority, are at a place that does have rules. And can they? Listen, I know. I, I really appreciated. Pastor Matt addressed matters about rules. And he said, you know, are there stupid rules? And we all laughed, and it's funny. And we know that there are some things that like, oh, that's, why, why in the world? Okay, but can a place have rules that are not our own standards? Yes, 
But when we come for education, or when we come for employment, or when we come by choice to a place like Campus Church, or any church for that matter, can a place, a church, a family, an institution have rules? Yes. Now the institution, the church, the family would do well to not say that these are the definition of godliness. And, and that ours have to be yours. But if you've come to a place that has standards, my, my process, biblical, I think this is, this is biblically driven, is either I come underneath God-ordained authority and I, I accept it. That wouldn't necessarily be my standard, but God, you've called me here as a student. That wouldn't necessarily be my standard, but God, you've called me here as an employee. God, that wouldn't necessarily be my standard, but you called me to this church. God, that might not be my standard someday, but I am underneath my father and my mother's authority. So I think what we would conclude, at least in places regarding education or employment or church, we would start to say, okay, well, I don't agree with that, but I'm going to come under or God, I don't agree with that and I'm going to go elsewhere. But not live, a, in a sense, live a lie because no, I'm here, I'm underneath this, but I'm not going to follow it. Well, now you've removed yourself from the umbrella of protection that God gives to God-ordained authority. So, so I think that when we start to say God places a high value on modesty and modesty is not defined by a list, don't take that to say, hey, cool, I don't have to obey any rules. That's a completely twisted interpretation of this. But as it pertains to modesty, can you define modesty? You have the secret to how many inches um, um, up or down it should be. I mean, how much should you have to pinch? And if you can pinch this much fabric, that is modest. Do you have that? Is that, our, our, is that how we summarize all of modesty? Or is there something that goes beyond this for modesty? The Bible says in 1 Timothy 2.9, In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array. So now you might be thinking, okay, well, you know, this is for, this is for women. Women are supposed to be modest. God, God gives us a standard for pastors, which I do believe is a standard for, for believers. It's not like, oh, I'm not going to be a pastor, so I don't have to do that. I think what God's saying, hey, listen, if you're a pastor, you need to meet these, these expectations, these characteristics. But really, they're, they're characteristics for all of us. What does he say? First Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, modest. Say it doesn't say that. It says of good behavior, same Greek word. Isn't that interesting? Of good behavior. So what is God connecting to? Okay, let them be, let a woman be modestly appareled. That connects something of our behavior to our clothing. And I think that is universal. It is, it is, it is not exclusively gender specific. He's talking to us. 
Modesty then is as much about the motivation behind our clothes as it is our clothes themselves. And sometimes we go directly to modest apparel, but really modest apparel comes from something far deeper than than the outside. I think it is reflected externally, but I think it begins internally. When we begin to talk about modesty, we usually have some standard in mind, but God's word so often takes us to something beyond the standard. You can't necessarily standardize your spirituality. Francis Schaeffer said this, He said, we do not come to true spirituality or the true Christian life merely by keeping a list, but neither do we come to it merely by rejecting the list and then shrugging our shoulders and living a looser life. The list is not the answer. There's something more important. So we're not trying to say that modesty can be finalized by how many inches clothes fall below or above the neckline or below or above the knee. And while I know it's challenging to process, modest apparel may actually look different in a variety of settings. So why do we, how do we define modesty? I like this definition. It's by a man named Luke Yokerson who writes for a ministry called Covenant Eyes. Listen to what he said. Modesty is a respectable manner of adorning one's body and carrying oneself. Born out of a true freedom from a worldly definition of beauty and worth and motivated by a hatred of sin and a desire to draw attention to God. I hate sin, is what he's saying. I'm not allowing my my beauty or my worth to be defined by the world, and I love God. Therefore, I want to adorn myself in a way that's consistent with him. Again, we go back to 1 Peter 3, 4. But let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which in the sight of God is of great price. Okay, so now he's saying there's something connected to your heart and that reflects itself in a meek and quiet spirit. Meek and quiet. Okay, so in my mind, when I'm thinking about this, I'm like, oh, okay, if, if I'm gonna externally demonstrate something that happens internally who would be the opposite of that my mind went to a passage that we're not unfamiliar with in Proverbs chapter 7 beginning in verse number 10 and behold there met him a woman with the attire of an harlot again this is just the covering of but where does that come from so I I can in a sense I don't know if I can see it only in her clothes but maybe I can see it more in her demeanor And behold, there met him a woman with the attire of an harlot and subtle of heart. She is loud and stubborn. Her feet abide not in her house. Now is she without, now in the streets, lieth and wait at every corner. So she caught him and kissed him with an impudent face set unto him. And the passage goes on and, and, and he starts walking what the Bible refers to as, as taking steps downward to, to the very pit of hell. Isn't this interesting? Meek and quiet. And then we we go to the opposite and she's loud and stubborn. And both of these have to do with covering. It's really profound how so much of what happens to us externally originates from us internally. One man wrote this, being pretty or handsome is not a sin. Working to improve your appearance does not have 
um, working to improve your appearance does not have to be vanity. The line between modest and immodest is not always black and white. While we are still left with the undeniable biblical fact that God considers modesty a virtue and its opposite a vice. So here's the last one and I'll cover this quickly so you have it. My clothes should be a reflection of the one I worship. That's, that's pretty broad, isn't it? That statement starts to help me understand. I, I, okay, I don't always have this list. And what about this context? Or what about this setting? Or Sometimes that's answered for you because you're in a place that says, hey, listen, we're going to uniformly say this is our standard. While not trying to cast some doubt or, or, or wrong thoughts towards someone who may think differently, this is our standard, so let's, let's hold to this. But when you're outside of this standard, what's that supposed to look like? My clothes should be a reflection of the one who I worship. There are only two choices of who's being worshipped. Only two. Either I am worshipping God and centering my world around him, or I am worshipping myself, my desires, my preferences, and centering my life and my choices around me. Colossians 3.17, And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Ultimately, what we should wear should be the result of a consideration that goes deeper than, I like it. I know that's important and it should be part of the consideration, but not the first or primary consideration. It should be connected to seeking, the represent, and seeking to represent well the one whose image I bear, whose name I am called by, whose desires are of greater importance than my own. This means you can be appropriately moral, socially, culturally, and of course biblically. Sadly, some have prided themselves in the flaunting of their bodies, while others have prided themselves in the covering of their bodies. The, the very sin that they point out that another is committing, they are actually in, in, committing, in, in danger of committing the same themselves. They look with some pride. Their covering becomes their identity. A woman who may be loosely covered from head to toe, who looks with disdain at another woman covered in a pair of pants, may find it rather shocking who it is that is truly at that moment displeased their savior. This is, does not mean that I'm advocating for or against pants on women. It does mean that our bodies, those of both men and women, are to be offered as a living sacrifice to the Lord. And the Apostle Paul said it plainly, I beseech you, I am pleading with you by the highest thing that I can plead. I beseech you therefore, brethren, and I'm doing so by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, Acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Does God care about what we wear? I believe the answer is yes. And I close with Psalm 149, verse 4. The Lord taketh pleasure in his people. He will beautify the meek with salvation. You find your true beauty in him.